You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Michael, an election has happened and we are social studies educators, at least, you know, you are. Um, I still try to do my social studies stuff when I can. You do. What now? That's a really good question. I think that's why we, we decided to have this podcast to discuss what now, what do we do? And I know that typically our format is to have an interview where we talk with one person about their experience. But for this, we thought that it might be a good idea to have a few different voices on. So we have Nate Bowling, who is a a past guest. Nate Bowling is a teacher from Tacoma, Washington. And we have Chris Hitchcock, who is a future guest who will be talking with us from Indiana. How about we start with everybody just talking a little bit about their teaching experiences and what groups of students they would be talking about elections with, whether you've done it much in the past. And I can start again. I'm everyone, hopefully, who's listening to this podcast knows who I am. I'm Dan Kretka, and um, I taught government for four years. And I taught during the 2008 election. I uh, was doing my student teaching during the 2004 election. And so I've gotten a couple opportunities to teach during presidential elections. And I actually really enjoy talking politics with students. I tell people often more so than with adults because kids tend to have an open mind and be willing to learn new things and discuss things. They're not as, um, I think Nate even used the term before in our previous episode 26, um, they're not as ideologically rigid as adults sometimes. So that's kind of my experience. How about you, Michael? So I teach high school in Massachusetts, and this is my seventh year teaching. Seventh year, I think. So I know with the 2012 election, we talked about it in class, but this is, well, this one's kind of a doozy. So it's been a lot more interesting, uh, to say the least. Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience? Well, I teach Right now, I'm teaching online for a private online high school, So, and I teach world history. So that's been not the typical election buildup and post-mortem, so to speak, with students, because I have students all over the world, not just in one centralized location. But in the past, I started teaching in 1995, so... This isn't my first rodeo as far as uh, teaching elections go. So I was there for 96 and 2000. Wasn't that a fun one, getting to talk about hanging chads with everyone? And that was kind of funny because I was teaching in New York at the time. And I had lived in Indiana where we still did the paper punch out ballots. So I had like personal experience with the chad making and whatnot. So that was really kind of cool to talk about. And since I've taught in several different states and voted in several different states, that's kind of been cool too you know, hear, you know, even experience the different voting procedures, like what, how you vote and how that's kind of changed over time and in different places. So it's been, it's really been interesting um, having taught in like a really small school, K-12, like 435 kids versus like a 2000 student high school. So yeah, so I've just had kind of a variety of experiences and I have to say this election, I was, I was a little intimidated by how do I do that in an online space. Mm -hmm. And Nate? 
So I teach AP government in a kind of low income urban school on the West Coast. And so a lot of my students are pretty like passionate about this work and this election. It's actually my second election I've taught. Uh, I taught in 2012 and it's been really kind of fascinating to watch my students' reactions. My students are really, really passionate about politics and passionate about some of the issues that were kind of discussed in the election. But at the same time, they've been really disappointed. And I've shared that disappointment in the coverage and the commentary that's happened. And the aftermath after the election has continued to be kind of disappointing, uh, looking at some of the commentary and the media coverage and what they've chosen to highlight and not highlight about the election. It's interesting that, you know, you have an election every four years, right? And so I feel like regardless of what you're teaching, you almost have an obligation to to incorporate it somehow into your, into your class regardless. Just because, again, you get it once every four years. Like, it's such a great learning opportunity. But yeah, I feel, I echo what Chris is saying that it points, this election was really difficult to to talk about just because of the... Um, oh, God. The, the language, the... Uh, it felt like a really different election. What do you think about that, the, the tone of the, this election? I think there's no doubt the tone of this election um, went to places we've never been before, <laughs> um, to use some kind of line from Star Trek, um, although less optimistically, not traveling through space. But, you know, I think dialogue has... There, all, there's been a lot of dirty elections and mudslinging throughout history. We tend to romanticize the past, but I think the nature of it was different. One thing I've been thinking about a lot this election, and we'll talk a little bit more about the media later, is is also what this election, how it reflects on who we are and who we are as a changing people. And um, if anyone's studied Neil Postman's work and Marshall McLuhan's work, they've talked a lot about how me- the media we consume in our lives reflects, ends up reflecting who we are. So it's a medium is the message type of thing. And I think this was kind of a reality TV election in many senses, is that we, we live in an age where we get small bits of information and we're highly entertained. And I wonder if that was evident that that works in politics more because that's the type of media we consume regardless of what the message is. So, And then I also think, going back to Nate's point, I'm really interested in what you guys have to say about how our, our student populations defer and how that affects how we teach the election. I could say specifically like in my classroom, uh, one of the things that I've always tried to do when talking about politics is, is that, so again, living on the West Coast, teaching in an urban area, having students of color, like my room is pretty blue. And so I've tried to ground the work that I've done in helping students understand what, not what do conservatives believe, but what do conservatives believe about themselves and what they believe. And so I've tried to get away from the the more dogmatic uh, approach that, that seems to like permeate election conversations, but like it was made really difficult in this election. One of the things that specifically like sticks in my head is I showed my students Reagan's convention speech in 76 and uh, afterwards they were like, where is that Republican Party? Like th- there's there's been a, a decline in discourse and a, de- and a decline in civility that when you expose students to the past, it, it is really, really clear. Like I'm not reflexively anti-Republican. I, I actually voted for a couple of problems on my ballot, but like my students – and, and it was pretty clear in my classroom that like the vast, vast majority of the students found Trump to be like not only just not a candidate for us to, to, to be unacceptable for the for like the heft of the job of the presidency. And so then if that's the understanding that we have as a room, it was really, really difficult to face what happened on, on Wednesday morning. Nate, you seem to be delving into really deep, important issues. You, t- you seem to be taking a step back and making historical comparisons. I think what you're doing, what maybe the media didn't do in this election, never seems to do well, is that you're not covering the election like it's a horse race. 
right? Um, you're not just covering it like who's winning and how are they winning and just providing updates. I mean, is that something that we have to help students see that the, that the media often covers elections like horse races and how we need to have more sophisticated understandings of what's happening? Horse race politics are kind of the depth of understanding. You turn on an episode of Meet the Press and it's 45 minutes of Chuck Todd saying, who's up, who's down, who's up, who's down? What are the optics of this? But when you talk about horse race politics, what you're doing is you're pushing policy conversations out the window. Donald Trump has been elected and now Donald Trump is going to have control of both uh, houses of Congress. The Republicans will have a majority of the state legislatures and the governor's mansion, and he'll be able to make a presidential appointment to the Supreme Court. None of that came up during the uh, conversation for the entire election. And so we had this conversation like, devoid of issues. Donald Trump is going to walk America away from its uh, climate change accords. We had no conversation about that. Essentially, he promised to bring back torture and waterboarding. We had no conversation about that. And every bit of coverage was who's up, who's down. And like when you reduce politics to like, is my team winning or losing? Then there's no real conversation about the important issues that are going to impact our nation. Like essentially, we're on the precipice of renegotiating the American social contract. Uh, the Republicans have the power right now where they can almost uh, ratify a constitutional amendment. But like none of that came up in the campaign coverage. It was Trump's bravado versus Hill Clinton's emails. And that didn't serve anybody. For those keeping track at home, in order to pass a constitutional amendment, because I know a lot of people right now are discussing the Electoral College, you need two-thirds of the House and the Senate, and you need three-fourths of the state legislature to vote to, a, or to ratify it. And then it would become an amendment. Thank you, Michael, for dropping in with the uh, teacher update, um, <laughs> social, social studies teacher update. I think another issue that's been talked about a lot is the Electoral College, because as last I saw, Hillary Clinton is probably going to win the popular vote. Um, and obviously lose the Electoral College. And so a lot of people have had discussions on that. I always found that a really fascinating discussion in my classes because there's so many intricacies to it. And one of the ones that I find, discussions I find most interesting is the argument for the Electoral College and the mess we'd have if we did a national recount. That's the thing I always bring up, why the Electoral College at least breaks down votes to states. But that's really the only argument I can make for the Electoral College. There's a lot of counters. It has been right most of the time. Well, not right. I mean, there's only been five five screw-ups, 1824, 76, 88, 1888, 76, 2000, of course, 2016. I've, again, I've been doing a lot of research on this recently, so I happen to – I know a little bit about, you know, the cuck-ups. Uh, interestingly, uh, every time that it does happen, people are very upset with that. Obviously, Andrew Jackson was like, this was a corrupt bargain that, you know, uh, made me not get the presidency – and Rutherford B. Hayes, of course, was called rather fraud B. Hayes. And so we also have a, very, uh, a history of being very upset at the Electoral College when it does not call it in the way that the popular vote goes. So, yeah, no, there's definitely a debate there. When I was listening to Nate, one of the things that I thought was, I was completely agreeing with him is that I think the potential policy effects of a Donald Trump presidency were never really discussed because he was never shown – as having a realistic chance at winning the election, I didn't think from the media coverage that I was watching and reading, um, the polling kept showing Clinton ahead, whether it was by a small percentage or a larger percentage. And so I don't think the real discussion of what do his proposals mean in terms of actuality, should he win, because he was never really discussed as having a serious chance. That's a really good point, Chris. Um, and I think the, that's a whole nother discussion is, is 
the shortcomings in polling. I, I think I, like a lot of people, followed 538 and Nate Silver's polling metrics. And I found a lot of their discussion about the polling and stuff very interesting to learn about how they, they used, you know, a variety of polls and determined margins of error and which polls, polls were most credible and which weren't. Um, and if you were paying attention to them, 538 did, you know, say this that this was a possibility, Trump winning, but not to the degree that happened in the Electoral College. I think they certainly still missed the mark. But yeah, I totally agree. I think we, we really haven't discussed so many things and there's so many so much that's un, that is kind of unsure right now because people don't know exactly what a Trump presidency is going to mean for a lot of policies. I mean, how much was education even discussed during this election for all of us educators? I mean, it was barely talked about and there's very little we know to go on on what's going to happen on that front. But then there's a whole, there's a whole host of issues from from people in poverty, you know, um, who are just generally ignored in elections. We talk about the middle class so much and talk about people in poverty very little. What are other thoughts you guys have about some of the the issues that have been kind of less understood by the public? Well, it's funny because people are responding to the polls being inaccurate, but in a way, the polls told us what was going to happen. It was a close election and Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by a small margin. And then if you look at the number of voters who didn't show up, like, like it's almost, we're having conversation about how polling was flawed. In actuality, I think it's turnout models were flawed. Uh, there's 5 million Democratic voters who voted in 2012 that stayed home. And I think it's a really bad sign for our democracy, uh, kind of going forward, if we have elections where turnout is declining over time. Uh, essentially, the media is responding like America, you know, stood up and roared that we want a, a Trump presidency. And actually what happened is America shrugged. Like America stayed home, they just shrugged. So what what can we do in our classrooms? What are you guys doing? Um, I know I spent a, a decent amount of time with my students because well, my students are going to be teachers, they're pre-service teachers. And so we took some time in small groups to discuss how would you teach about the election? And we brainstormed, we talked about what was necessary to make it work. And one of the biggest things I did realize talking with my students though is I think sometimes that their views of election is just kind of a one-time thing. I view democracy as something that's ongoing, um, something we have to participate in all the time. And I did get the sense when my students thought about, I asked them, how do we talk about democracy and elections in our class? They saw it as a very much one-time event, not something that you do regularly in your class, which I think if we don't do this more regularly, talk about politics and, and things like that that it's difficult. But I did a lot of small group talks and I tried to really tried to set the stage for respect. And I, I kind of mentioned that it's important everyone's humanized within our classroom. Um, we're not going to debate other people's humanity in our classroom. And so, and that's a difficulty of this election. So what'd you guys do? My students just had lots of questions and a lot of them were actually very much mostly about the constitution. They wondered about checks and balances. And so we talked about that and they wondered about the electoral college. Interestingly, they wondered about impeachment and will it happen? And uh, it also obviously made me think about the fact that we do not have a civics course in which students would get that. They'd only get that in context of history. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, having a civics course where you're able to kind of refresh and really focus on the issues. And just like you said, the focus on the issues of the fact that it's not just a one and done thing, that democracy is an ongoing thing. There are elections all the time. There's also ways outside of the election in which you can get involved. And so I feel like, you know, schools are, are, are losing that with the, the lack of civics in, in education. One of the things that I do as a social studies teacher, and I haven't taught U.S. history since the late 90s, um, 
but I have taught government a few times, but primarily world history, is we talk about the the role of the individual, mm-hmm. that history doesn't happen in a vacuum, that history is not just a progression of events that happen, that it's all about decision making and different individuals or groups making decisions and choosing certain paths to take and having to deal with the effects of those paths. Um, so when we're talking, you know, I make a very conscious effort for a variety of reasons to try to connect what we're talking about in world history, even things way far back to current events as much as possible. That is something that I draw in, I try to draw into a lot and to help the students see that that is something, there are actions that they can take, even if it's not an election year, it's talking about, okay, if you think that this particular cause is important, how do you get involved with it? How do you get that cause out there? How do you push for the change that you want to see? Um, And so I think a big part of keeping that, like what Dan was talking about, about democracy, not your participation in democracy, not just being voting every, not even every four years, it should be every two years or every year. I mean, there are local and state elections and things that come up outside of those presidential election years is what can you do? Can you go to your local, you know, your city government meetings and hear about proposals and can you speak in front of those groups um, in your city council or you know your county commissioners hearings or what have you can you go up to your state house and actually participate in a rally or you know can you contact I mean my son got bent out of shape about the our state testing here two years ago because it was so long because of changes they had made and he said, I'm really mad. Who do I talk to about this? I said, here's the email addresses of the state school board. Fire off an email. And he did. You know, so I'm like, I think we can give the student, help the students find that there are tools where they can be participants in democracy. Many of them are not old enough to vote. There are things that they can do outside of just voting that are year round, all the time, forever. One thing you said, Chris, I, I think we should talk about is our curriculum in civics and government classes. I'm interested to hear what you you think, Nate, but as a government teacher, when I taught AP government and my other government classes, I often felt like it didn't prepare students for the work of democracy enough. We focus so much on the federal level of government and so little on local levels and state levels and also so little on how you actually participate. Like we just try to shove our students full of government knowledge that a lot of it's not really applicable to the things they have to do. Um, And if they do, they'll probably learn those later. So I think we need to rethink our government curriculum around democratic participation. So I I like the AP government curriculum in general, but I would say that one thing that it does is it really underestimates or doesn't go into how much how much happens at the state and local level. And I've said to my students, like on the aggregate, state legislatures and governors have more power, I think, than the president and Congress do. If you want to think about like all the powers that happen at the local level. But I would just say in my classroom, out of this election, there are three things I hope every student gets. One, bad things happen when good people don't vote. Two, elections have consequences. And three, that when you forfeit your right to vote to somebody else, you're basically forfeiting your control over, over the direction of society. And those are the things I hope my students get from this. Uh, as far as like responding to the election in the classroom, I'm doing a lot of listening and trying to make sure my students feel like, feel like they have a safe place and a safe space. 
I have Muslim students and basically the president elect has said that he doesn't want to allow, he wants to have a, have a, a, a database of, 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 about where all the Muslims in America are. Uh, I have LGBT students and they're concerned that they're not going to be able to marry the person they want to marry. And I have students who are undocumented and parents are undocumented and they have a real trepidation. But at the same time, like my classroom is in therapy. And so what I've been trying to do is kind of create a space for a conversation and then talk about like, how do we go forward from here? How do we organize? I, I always joke that if teenagers voted like senior citizens do, that's then student loan interest rates wouldn't be 7%, right? <laughs> but like they don't. Like, and so, and part of it is like, you get the government you deserve. There's a saying that like, we don't have government by the people. We have government by the people who uh, participate. And like, when you, when you ground it and kind of think about it like that, uh, it, it should hopefully make the stakes of elections higher than they are. There are a lot of students who probably feel the results of this election are very threatening to the, even their lives. I know that in Texas, we have a lot of students who have family members who are undocumented and you know we have Muslim students. We have a lot of students who feel, like Nate was saying, very worried about the outcomes of this election, what it means for them and their families. How do we create spaces in our classes? One of the things that I'm going to do is have some community organizations come into my building in the evenings and do presentations. And so I'm going to have one group come in and talk specifically around like, what are the worst case scenarios for undocumented students? And like, what are the worst case scenarios for like, what could go forward or, or happen uh, with, with the process of the DACA process that Trump plans to, to suspend? I'm going to have another conversation because Trump has said that he wants to stop and frisk, have another evening forum where I have community members come in and talk about like civil liberties and teaching my students more about civil liberties. And so for me, it's, it's going to be taking some of this out of the classroom and trying to get my students and also their family members present and connecting them with people who have more information than I have. As far as like in the classroom goes, it's just answering the questions they have and letting them know that like my room is always a place for them to be. And so like on election day, I had my usual like lunch, cr lunch crew and in the corner, a girl cried and I went over and checked on her and she's like, I just know that I can be here and be safe. And like, that's, that's the least, but also most important thing we can do as teachers. Yeah, I had a similar experience um, where I had a student message me Wednesday morning and said, can I, can you call me? And I said, well, sure. So I called her and I thought, completely thought she had a question about the class and she just said, I'm so freaked out about this election. Oh my gosh. And she had a variety of reasons for being freaked out about the election. And I had to really stop myself because I wanted to kind of jump in and reassure her, but I think she really just needed to talk. And I think that that's something, whether you're in an online classroom or a traditional classroom, is giving the students that space to kind of let some things out. And hopefully, you know, by this point in the year, everybody's kind of got like that safe classroom environment you kind of been working on since the beginning of the year, where students know that they can talk, but they're also thinking about how their words can affect other students and things. And so you're reminding them about that kind of ground rules, that kind of thing. But um, really just giving them that chance to talk, but then also trying to put things into the, I guess, kind of the longer historical view of things. As far as I think we, we were talking about this earlier about, okay, well, what if he, if President-elect Trump wants to do X, what is he actually going to have to do to get that done? What are some things that can be done by executive order versus things that can be done by, you know, that have to be gone through Congress, um, things that may have to be, you know, that may be challenged with court cases that could end up in the Supreme Court? So I think, you know, kind of giving that space of, okay, it's not just magic wand, whoo, you know, all this stuff happens. Well, I mean, executive orders kind of get close to that, but um, 
that gives you a, a teaching opportunity for talking about executive orders and how they've been done by presidents from both political parties. And it points out that democracy isn't over now. Um, this election is not a final result, um, that there are ways to get involved and advocate for things that you want to do now. But I, I had a student come up to me after my class on Wednesday, too. Like, I, I think a lot of people don't think about this role that we have as teachers. Uh, we don't just talk and teach about elections. We have students come to us with their fears. And I had a student come up just totally you know, shaken and worried about what was going to happen to their family. And I didn't have I have no answers for them, but I just told them, you know, let, what can I do to help? If you need anything, I'm here to help point them to other resources, other places, and just be someone who they can count on to care about what's happening to them and, and what's happening in their lives. Every single teacher in, in my hallway, because we're all history, uh, we were all talking about it, whereas, you know, t teachers in other departments weren't. And they're were like, wow, we really do pity you at this point. And we're like, well, yeah. but. You know, I think your point about, you know, finding resources and getting it to them, Nate and Dan, I, I think it's important figuring out what resources we have as a as a community and how we can get that into the hands of students who who need it. Well, and at the same time, we also have to, like, endow our students with a sense of hope. And so, like, on, at my school, my students are playing a protest on Monday. And I'm like, that's cool. You're playing a protest. But are you also registering your classmates to vote? That's the thing is, is I, I I'm a pessimistic person, but I don't bring that pessimism into my work in my classroom. Like my classroom has to be a place of hope. And so we're talking about, you know, so what are the legislative means that are possible to, 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 to rectify some of Trump's policies? How does the fact we live in Washington state going to change through federalism, going to change um, how we might feel the impact of federal decisions? And so like that, that's kind of like the main charge to us as educators is, is to like, we have to communicate the stakes of this election and the seriousness of what's going to happen to America or could happen going forward. But at the same time, it needs to be a hopeful thing where we talk about like what is available to our students and, and what we can do. And I think, I think avoiding um, othering is really important. Nate, uh, Michael, I know we've talked about this a little bit, how you can help students see each other as, as people and see others as people. And obviously a lot of the language in the campaign and a lot of the Trump's language has been, um, very othering, but political politics in general is very othering. It always has been. It's just that specific groups, I think, felt the brunt of it more in this election than others. But there's no doubt that I think we other people that disagree with us on um, political you know, issues or voted for a different person to the point where it's hard to have a conversation. And once we can't have a conversation with someone, you can't work through, you know, finding common ground or changing someone's mind if you're not having a conversation anymore. And it's not always easy to do because I think some of those spaces you feel like um, people are marginalizing or minimizing others. And how do you start a conversation with that person? And I've, I know I've struggled with that. But, you know, how do we do that in our classrooms? How do we get our students to find ways to continue to engage in conversations without othering? I think part of it, it, it really begins with us, I feel like, about how this election has caused a lot of uh, uh, broken friendships. Uh, or a lot of muting on Facebook of people with with you know different views, and I, I think it's time to unmute and to to talk. Although Facebook not, might not be the best place, but to actually talk to people about their ideas and their beliefs instead of just you know silencing them. I think if we you know as a society unmute each other, that we um, hopefully we'll be able to hear each other and see where they're coming from. Uh, and so I think that it's not just again with our students; this is also with ourselves. And then ideally bring that to the classroom to have those conversations. Maybe that will help. 
And I think, Michael, one one point we can kind of start to finish on a little bit, and I'd love to hear Chris and Nate what you guys think about this, but Facebook has created a new game in learning about the election. It's it's a curate it's a curator of a lot of articles and some of them from all kinds of sites that lack credibility. And I think this really brought up the importance of media literacy in schools. Um, what do you two think we can do to help make sure that our dis- dialogue and our discussions are informed um, by sound, warranted claims and evidence? Well, this is a huge deal. And like we've seen like the rise of the fake news sites on, on Facebook. One of my, my favorite strategies that I use in my classroom is, is pretty early in the year, I make a curated Twitter list. And like these are the sources that I follow. And on that, on that list, there's the Atlantic Magazine and there's the National Review. Uh, and so I, 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 it has conservative sources and it has liberal sources. But w- just just the, the degradation of, of one voice or, or, or of, I don't know, a lot of people like, like hailed the Internet as this like democratizing thing. Uh, but it, it reminds me of that early part in the AP government unit where you talk about elites. Like we've all over the last few years, you know, gone death to the elites, death to the elites. But I think we're seeing from this election that elites actually serve a, a role in our political process. And that's a super unpopular thing to say, but I think it's important. Like we need gatekeepers. And so I, I just constantly try to make sure that my students are getting reliable and relevant sources and not uh, junk from either one side or the other. It's kind of like the French Revolution. With, I mean, because uh, they're printing really crazy stuff, terrible things that had no basis in reality. And it caused a whole lot of chaos. And so I just like to make that comparison sometimes because the French Revolution is fantastic. And that, and the, you know, we're getting to the point of, of, of democracy. I mean, I think part of democracy is putting pressure on Mark Zuckerberg to take responsibility for Facebook as a platform, which he, by the way, has totally evaded all responsibility on the topic um, <laughs> that Facebook had any role. And we can't view technology as, as value neutral. Technology isn't. I mean, it, it the way it ends up functioning often conveys different types of values. And I think that clearly comes through Facebook. What do you think, Chris? I have seen that a lot on Facebook. I have a lot of, I grew up in Southwestern Indiana. And so, you know, and I've lived in a few different States in, you know, outside of urban areas and then in much more rural areas. Um, so I have a lot of friends on Facebook and family on Facebook from various ends of the political spectrum. So I have seen a lot of that fake news being put out there and it's really challenging to me because of confirmation bias. Like if I have pointed it out a few times that that's actually not true and I have and I've tried to do it nicely and it's so hard because it's the teacher in me. I'm just like, that is not true. How can you share that? And people don't want to hear it and they don't take kindly to being corrected. And I guess I shouldn't view it as correction. But anyway, um, that's one of the things that I've tried to emphasize to my students in every lesson in my online world history classroom. They have to come up with a source. They have to find a source on their own. And that's like one of the the second intro lesson in the course is finding and working with historical sources and determining reliability and credibility. So they're doing that every lesson. Then that's one of the questions like, well, why do you, what about the source makes you think it's reliable or valid, credible, that kind of thing. And I'm hoping that that will, you know, stay over to their, their post-school lives. I created a lesson recently, which basically just uses the same concepts of how we 
um, analyze primary sources and it applies them to different media posts today. Um, and I think that's the type of stuff we have to be doing when we're teaching a government class, pulling posts from different sources and giving students practice in evaluating those so that when they get on Facebook, it's not a passive kind of experience where they just kind of accept things as they come, but their critical analytical skills are turned on because they practice that stuff in school. And so I think we have to give students those skills to be able to kind of do those things. So um, I don't know, Nate, what you want to give us the last word on, on this election as we kind of finish up? Well, we talked earlier about the problem of horse race politics in, in journalism. And I think another problem that journalism has that was exposed in this election is the false equivalence. And so I, I think there's going to be a national conversation or needs to be one about like the role of objectivity in news. If you just look throughout the election, there was so much false equivalence journalism being done. Donald Trump is being sued by these number of people. Hillary Clinton has this email thing. And these are equal, equally outrageous events. Or Donald Trump has violence at his rallies in which you know numerous people of color are assaulted. Or there was vandalism done at a, to, a, to a Trump place. So then they're both equally culpable. Like We have to have intentional conversations in our classrooms and as a society about how the false equivalence narrative really, really harms us at, at getting to like what's happening in society and getting to the truth. I think that's a great point to um, finish with, Nate. And I, I don't know that we answered any questions today, but I really hope that this podcast can get some ideas going for teachers and think through it. And, and so thank you both to, to Nate and Chris for joining us. We had you both on because you are wise social studies teachers who, who, pro who bring a lot, I think, to, uh, to the conversation. So thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I appreciated it. Where can folks get in touch with the both of you? I'm on Twitter at, at chitch94. And I'm on Twitter at Nate underscore Bolin. And I also blog about ed issues and justice issues at natebolin.com. Awesome. We will, and if we have some other resources, we'll, we'll definitely toss those online and keep the conversation going. So at, obviously at the Visions of Education podcast, we're all about sharing learning. If you have anything you want to discuss, if you're doing something creative in the classroom, if you want to chat about the election or how you're teaching it in the class, shoot us a, a message over Twitter. Uh, we're at Visions of Ed. You can also, you know, like us on the Facebook and talk to us there too. Let's keep the conversation going and make sure that we're supporting uh, one another. Uh, and obviously, if you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to Visions of Education on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Yes, get on there in all three and listen through the episodes on each one. Because <laughs> it's a little bit different on each one, I hear. Yeah, we, we, try, to make, we try to change them all up, so give that a try. Um, <laughs> if you write us a five-star review, we will read it on the air. Um, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Think Deep. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast signing off. <laughs>